Hello, and welcome to the Disaster Diving Podcast. I'm Tatiana, and today we will be talking about the sinking of the Costa Concordia. Imagine booking an Italian cruise with your family. You get to live in the lap of luxury. Poolside drinks, spa time, decadent restaurants. One night, suddenly, the power goes out and emergency lights come on. Heart pounding, you ask every staff member you see what is going on, and you are told it's just an electrical issue that will be resolved shortly. Relieved, you try to relax. But over the next hour, the floor starts gradually tilting more and more. Other passengers around you begin to don their life jackets, and you decide to head to the lifeboats just in case, where you are told to go back to your cabin as there is nothing to worry about. Two hours later, you're trapped in pitch black on a ship that is now incapable of launching lifeboats, as it is fully laying on its side. The water is rising, and you know if the helicopters don't come soon, you will never see the shore again. Good day. I don't really have any news to discuss, but I did find it interesting that we're discussing an Italian incident today. And just a few days ago, there was an Italian accident that happened on, what do you call those things that go up mountains? A cable car. And unfortunately, it left 13 people dead as they plunged to the ground from the cable car, which is the worst thing ever. I truly hope for justice for their families, and I hope they find the reason for that accident. And if they do, I might review it on a later podcast, as I would be very interested to find out the reason why this disaster occurred. All right, now back to the Costa Concordia. With 13 decks, each named for a European country, the Costa Concordia is a typical example of a huge floating city-style cruise ship. The ship was ordered in 2004 by the Carnival Corporation and built in Genoa, Italy. It cost 450 million euros to build, roughly 570 million US dollars. The name Concordia was apparently meant to express the wish for continuing harmony, unity, and peace between European nations. It launched in Sestri Panet on September 2nd, 2005. If you don't know, you might have seen, I think there's even a scene in Trek where they show this, but there's a maritime tradition where a ship has launched and a bottle of champagne is broken against the side of the new ship. There was, it was in Trek. Two, I think? Shrek 2, where he smashes the ship, or smashes the bottle beside the side of the ship, and he ends up smashing right through the side of the ship, and the whole ship sinks. Yeah. (laughs) But uh, anyway, in this case, the champagne bottle was released by an Italian model named Eva Herzegova. But the bottle failed to break when swung against the ship, which, if you didn't know, is actually a really, really bad omen for the ship in maritime superstition which is so eerie considering what came later. The Costa Concordia was operated by Costa Crociere, which is a subsidiary of the Carnival Cruise Ship Corporation. The ship had a massive diesel-electric engine system, which powered everything from propulsion to lighting to air conditioning. There were 1,500 cabins on board, 505 with private balconies, and 55 had direct access to the spa. The ship boasted a two-level exercise facility, including a thalassotherapy pool. I didn't know what that was. I had to look it up. It's basically bathing in, I think, just salt water, but it says specifically seawater, as that is good for your system in some way or another. The spa 
also, or the exercise facility, sorry, also had a sauna, a Turkish bath, and a solarium. The ship also had four swimming pools, two of which had retractable roofs, allowing for swimming in rainy weather. There were five jacuzzis and a poolside movie theater. If you didn't want to watch movies by the pool, there was also thankfully a regular theater, three levels high. If you got hungry aboard, you could enjoy the luxury of choosing from between five onboard restaurants and 13 bars, including a cigar and cognac bar or a coffee and chocolate bar. <laughs> chocolate bar. If cognac or coffee doesn't sound fun for little kids, don't worry. They did have a children's area complete with video games and a basketball court. There was also, of course, an internet cafe, and to round out your experience, there was a Grand Prix motor racing center. On January 13th, 2012, the ship left the port of a very large Italian name, Civitavecchia, which is the port city of Rome, at 7.18 local time. The ship was carrying 1,023 crew members and 3,206 passengers. The seas were calm, although the weather was a little bit overcast. The captain at this time was Francesco Chettino, who is a moron, a poophead. Any bad words you can think of, just apply it to him. I really really dislike that man. The plan was an overnight trip through the Tiharian Sea to Savona, another island in Italy. On the way, the captain had decided to do a salute of an island named Giglio. This means sailing close to the island. This is a sign of nautical respect, but not very common in cruise ships, at least not to the point of actually changing your course. This had been ordered at the request of the restaurant manager, who was a native of the island. The island was also home to the captain's mentor, a Costa captain who was now retired and living on the island. This is likely why the captain agreed to salute the island. I doubt that mentor wants to claim Chitino as one of his students nowadays. I wouldn't. So to complete this salute, the alteration was discussed with the second officer, who altered the voyage plan to include a waypoint with a course alteration of more than 60 degrees at a distance of 0.9 nautical miles off the island of Giglio. The safety margin established by the captain was 0.5 nautical mi miles, which is one kilometer, from rocks that were known to the captain off the coast of the island. These rocks were a part of a reef named La Scale, is what it looks like, but I imagine in Italian that's like La Scale. The ship had completed a similar close passing of the island in 2011, which went just fine. So on this night, the captain was on the bridge and took command to carry out the course alteration. It was also later found that the captain's leather, his words, not mine, was with him at the helm, which I can just picture. I picture him, I think he unbuttoned a few buttons. Personally, I picture some chest hair showing. I picture this Italian man with these very bushy eyebrows holding his lover, who is blonde in a tight red dress, close to him and going, ah, yes, my ship, holding the wheel in one hand. That's probably not how it happened, but that's what I picture. And frankly, that would make a lot of sense considering what came next. So he brought his lover along for the cruise, and it's thought he was also trying to impress her by personally taking the ship. So in order to change the course to do the salute, the captain turned off the autopilot. The location of the Lascale Reef was known, but the ship got off track without the autopilot. The captain noticed that the ship was getting too close to the reef, and he'd attempted a rudder maneuver combination to avoid the reef, which failed. As you can imagine, it's not easy to steer something that large, and quick course alterations aren't really possible. There were early warning systems on the bridge designed to help avoid such a disaster, and it was later found they were in fact operational, so 
I guess the crew just ignored them. I I think in this case, no one was willing to challenge the captain. Sounds like his second officer just planned the course and he was able to take control and that's it. It was like a man driving his own personal vessel versus a cruise ship with a whole crew. So at 8.45 local time, the ship hit an underwater rock in front of the island of Giglio, causing the loss of the watertight integrity of the hull and subsequent massive flooding that caused critical arrest of the propulsion and the electrical systems. You can see there's a lot of personal videos out there of the crash. I've watched a lot of them, but people knew that this happened, right? There was a huge sound when the ship hit the rocks, huge shuddering through the ship, and all of the electricals turned off shortly after. So the ship was purposely steered to shallow waters where it capsized. For a very long time, about an hour, the captain tried to deny that this disaster was even occurring, even as it played out under the feet of the passengers and crew on board. The order to abandon ship was not made until at least an hour after the impact. The ship was gradually listing and sinking all this time. There was no possibility of restarting either the engines or the electrical systems. The passengers were experiencing this. They had no power, including air conditioning. They couldn't charge cell phones. There was no lights except for the emergency lighting. And the world was slowly tilting under them. Towards the end, in fact, long after the evacuation started taking place, the emergency lights went out as well. The captain also instructed the crew to tell passengers that the vessel was simply experiencing a blackout and there was no need to worry, which was a complete lie. The captain also lied to maritime authorities in the area, saying the same story. It's fine, it's just a blackout, they're going to figure out the source. He said it was just a temporary electrical issue that was causing the blackout. When the captain decided to tell the passengers and authorities what was happening, he did so. Then he was the first to abandon the ship with all the crew in the helm. Although his claim is that he slipped and fell off the ship, happening to land in a lifeboat and be rowed to shore completely against his will. Of course, when the Coast Guard told him to go back to his sinking ship until all the passengers were off, he refused. There is video footage of the Italian authorities yelling at him over their radios, telling him to get back on his ship, and they went hard on him. The head of that Coast Guard, that guy, he was saying, you are the captain, you have a responsibility. How many women are there on the ship? How many children? How many who need physical assistance? How many people are there on the ship? Captain's like, I don't know. How many corpses are there? The authority's like, you were supposed to be telling me how many there are. You get back on the ship. This is an order. You get back on the ship. I am in control now. You have decided to abandon the ship and I order you to get back on that ship. Are you refusing me? And the Captain is basically saying, yes, I'm refusing. Well, actually, he says, no, no, I'm not refusing. But are you aware it's dark? The guy goes, oh, is it dark, Shatino? Do you want to go home? Get back on the ship. It's excellent. I love the head of that Coast Guard. Shatino is just, he's just a shit show. So the evacuation of all the passengers took over six hours. In the end, 32 people died, 27 of them passengers and five of them crew members. 60 more were injured. All of the bodies were eventually recovered, some during the initial rescue operations. Divers were sent in, right? Because there's always the hope of finding survivors in air bubbles in the ship. And two bodies were found during the salvage, 20 months after the sinking of the ship. One of these was a waiter named Russell Terence Ribello, who had been last seen helping passengers to escape from the ship. The other was a 50-year-old woman named Maria Grazia Ciccarici, who was on the cruise with her 17-year-old daughter. Her daughter did survive. Some died from jumping from the ship and trying to swim to land and being caught in the vortex caused by the ship sinking. One man who died this way, Francis Serval, had given his life vest to his wife, who didn't know how to swim. Others died when they were told to head to the other side of the ship, the side that was sinking into the water, because no more lifeboats could be launched from the above-water side due to the steep incline. They were caught by the swirling water level rising through the ship. 
If they had stayed on the above water side, the rescue helicopters would have eventually gotten them out. I'm going to read a number of survivor stories because the stories are haunting and shocking. And I think no amount of facts about how the ship went down are as effective as just hearing about the people who were on the ship. They are all American citizens. It wasn't all American citizens on board the ship. In fact, I don't even think it was mostly American citizens, but those are the stories that came out in English right away. There was, I know, people from Spain, people from, there are lots of Italian citizens, French citizens, but these are the American ones. This first story is fairly long, but I was absolutely incensed reading it, and I really want to read it to you guys. It's from a book called SOS, Spirit of Survival. On January 13th, 2012, the Ananias family, Dean, 66, Georgia, 63, and their daughters, Valerie, 32, and Cindy, 25, of Los Angeles, set off on a dream cruise aboard the luxurious Costa Concordia. They had a third daughter, Debbie, who was 30 years old, but she was not on board the ship as she had just gotten married. Dean says, While we were sitting in the dining room that first night, the theme song from the movie Titanic began playing. I remember Georgia commenting on how maybe this wasn't the best song to play on a cruise ship. Turns out she was more right than she knew. A short while later, as we were eating our salads, we heard rumbling, and the ship started vibrating like a mini earthquake. Next came a loud bang, and the lights flashed. The guy next to us got up and bolted for the door, his wife hurrying behind. The table on the other side of us was a mess of screaming kids. Over the PA system, we heard an announcement, which at first we couldn't understand. After sitting through Italian, French, and German versions, we finally got the English one, and learned that we had nothing to fear, because this was just an electrical problem. Meanwhile, the ship was starting to tilt, and things were falling off the upper level. Panicked passengers were pushing and shoving their way out of the dining room, sliding on the slanting floor. We waited for the stampede to clear so we could avoid getting separated. Cindy says, People were freaking out in various languages, rushing for the doors. A waiter motioned for us to take the service stairs up to the lifeboat deck. Things weren't much better up there. Normally on cruises, there's a muster drill the first day, where the crew shows you what to do in an emergency. But there had been no drill on this cruise, and now there was zero organization. My sister Val was convinced we had hit something. She asked Dad, who had been in the Navy, how much time we'd have to get off the ship if it were sinking. That's when we noticed that everyone else had life jackets. Apparently, while we had waited for the stampede to pass, everyone had raided the life jacket bins, and now they were empty. Georgia says, I knew we had three life jackets downstairs in our cabin. Could we risk going further down into the ship when we didn't know if we were taking on water? We decided to try. We didn't want to split up, especially since the lights were out and the girls' cabin was several decks away. But at least if we could get to the stateroom that Dean and I shared, three of us would have jackets and maybe we'd find another. So we got down on our hands and knees and crawled down two decks with only the emergency floor lighting to guide us. Inside, the room was pitch black. Somehow I managed to feel my way to the closet jump, and grab all three life jackets. Thank God I remembered where I had put them. Just as I came out into the hallway, I saw a room steward. I knew he had master keys, so I asked him to open another cabin so we could get a fourth life jacket. Shockingly, he told us he wasn't allowed to do that. It felt like that scene in Titanic, where the people in the steerage are begging the steward to unlock the gate so they can get on the lifeboats, but he says he isn't allowed. I knew we wouldn't be permitted to board a lifeboat without life jackets, because that is standard protocol, and this crew wasn't going to do anything extra to help us. And what if we found ourselves needing to jump overboard? We had no idea how close to land we were. In fact, because of the side of the ship we were on, it looked to us like we were in the middle of the ocean. We were making our way back up to the boat deck. When there it was, a gray life jacket hanging right in front of me. Not a single person was nearby, and I knew it hadn't been there when we'd come down a few minutes earlier. 
I realized that not everyone believes in miracles, but in that instant, I did. Dean says, Once we all had life jackets, our family returned to the boat deck. Crew weren't helping, and I started to worry that even if we were finally put on lifeboats, they wouldn't know how to run them. Most of them were waiters and kitchen staff. We kept trying to convince them that we needed to evacuate before the ship tilted too much, but the captain still had not given the signal. If they had started loading the lifeboats as soon as people came up on deck, I have no doubt everyone would have gotten off safely. Finally, we heard the signal. What we didn't know was that the captain had gotten off the ship as soon as he gave that evacuation order. As the gates to the lifeboats opened, passengers made a mad dash, shoving others aside and jumping in. We got on a boat and took our seats, relieved that we were safe. But the nightmare was just beginning. Valerie said, I knew I wouldn't breathe easy until the lifeboat was lowered into the water. We had been listening more and more, and I had this bad feeling that when the time came, they wouldn't be able to lower the boat, because the ship was tilted too far and its side would be in the way. Each lifeboat held about a hundred people. We saw other boats launch, but for some reason it took longer to load ours. Then a crew member got on and told us we had to count ourselves off, in English, while we waited to be lowered. But most of the passengers didn't speak English, and we could barely get through a few numbers before someone would get lost and not know what number came next. Maybe if we had done a muster drill, we'd have understood the system, but all this did was waste precious time. Finally, they started trying to lower our boat, but it hit and scraped against the side of the ship. They made several attempts using a long pole to try to push us far enough away to launch us safely, but each attempt resulted in more scraping, and the danger of the boat flipping over was too great. Eventually, someone yelled, stop, and I knew in that instant we weren't going to make it off. Georgia said, obviously, people who fled a sinking ship don't want to hear they have to go back on. So when we weren't moving fast enough, two crew members started grabbing and yanking us. The deck was now sharply angled, and I slid and slammed into the bulkhead. I saw one woman severely twist her ankle, but there was no way to help her because it was too difficult to stand. People were screaming and crying. I remember saying to myself, you're never going to be able to help them all. I had to concentrate on saving my family. Dean said, we were on the port side of the ship, and we heard that lifeboats were still launched from the starboard side. Could everyone who'd been thrown off our lifeboat get over there in time? After much confusion, we started inching toward a corridor that led to the starboard side. We got about a third of the way when we heard glasses breaking and plates crashing. All at once, the ship rolled even more and people were screaming. Clearly, it wasn't safe to continue down the corridor. So I told my family we had to give up trying to reach the other side and instead get to the highest point. Cindy said, The climb back up to the deck was exhausting. Picture one of those steep concrete highway embankments and imagine trying to walk up it in the pitch dark. Finally, we emerged back on deck, except the most recent roll had turned the deck into a wall, and the wall had become the floor. At about nine or ten feet up, the deck, now wall, was a railing. I thought that if my family boosted me up there, I could help them next. I grasped two rails like a kid on the monkey bars, swinging my feet to get up. Then I leaned down and told my sister, give me your hand. Next, we both pulled mom up. We didn't think we could grab dad, and he jumped. Looking back, I'm amazed at our physical feats. Everyone in our family is in decent shape, but we don't climb mountains or run obstacle courses. I'm incredibly proud that we never let our fear or self-doubt stand between us and survival. Valerie said, Once we were all balanced on the railing, looking down at the bulkhead below, much like Jack and Rose did in Titanic, we turned our attention to the stairwell. I think we had all been desperately hoping we could find some exit that would take us straight to the water level and we could just swim for it. Another passenger went to check and then yelled that there was no way out. I looked at my dad, the Navy veteran, and what I saw was heartbreaking. I had obviously known we were in a dire situation, but the look on dad's face made it all the more real. He knew the ship was rolling over. He knew that when we capsized, we would be trapped underwater with the cruise ship forcing us down to the bottom of the sea. I could tell he was trying to be strong and not worry us, but his face said this was the end. I started saying the creed, the Greek Orthodox prayer we had said so many times in church. We talked and prayed on that reeling, waiting for the water to come, waiting to die. Yet I just couldn't understand that there wasn't some way out. It was like half of me was at peace with the idea of death, and the other half was in total denial. Dad took his cell phone out, even though it didn't have service. 
thinking that maybe by some miracle we might try to get a call out to Debbie to tell her goodbye. One of the strangest things was that none of us were crying. It had to be unbelievably hard for my parents to think of leaving Debbie, and I know they were worried that Cindy or I would die first and they would have to see it. But they stayed strong and just kept telling us how much they loved us. Dean said, When the water didn't come, I thought, what in the world is going on here? What I didn't know was that the ship had come to rest on rocks. I later learned that we had drifted out to sea after our initial collision, but a steady wind had blown us back so that when we rolled on our side, the shore broke our fall. Some people might call that luck, but our family knows it was a miracle. Finally, we decided to get off the railing and find out what was happening. We had to jump to the deck below. Then we noticed a group of people moving towards the ship's bow. Walking on a wall that had become floor is harder than it sounds. For instance, there were windows, and while they probably could have supported our weight, we weren't chancing it, so we had to keep maneuvering around. We used our own saliva to activate the lights on our life jackets so we could see better. Once we got closer to the crowd, we saw an extension ladder rising toward the sky. Now, this is hard to envision, but basically, if the ship had been upright, the ladder would have been lying along the ground, stretching from one side of the deck to the other, and sticking out a little into one of the holes where a lifeboat had been. But since the deck was now the wall, the last few rungs were sticking up into the air. Men were shoving women and children aside, and older people were being trampled. This ladder was the only way to get up onto the side of the ship and possibly out. Valerie and Cindy couldn't stand watching the kids being pushed mercilessly out of the way, so they muscled their way to the front and got as many children up the ladder as they could. Once they had all the kids up, it was their turn. The girls looked our way, but Georgia told them not to worry about us. We had lived our lives and wanted them to save ourselves. We would get up the ladder if we could, but they needed not to waste any more time. The girls firmly said no. Either we all went or none of us went. In order to keep things moving, we agreed. Georgia climbed up, but then I noticed more parents with kids, so I let them go ahead. When I finally got on the ladder, I could hear Cindy yelling from above, That's my dad! And I had no idea who she was talking to until I got near the top and saw a couple of German fellows helping people. They told us to head towards the stern, the highest point of the ship. As people got off the ladder, some were heading right, like us, but most went left. We learned later that a rope ladder had been set up on the left side to get everyone down to waiting lifeboats. But at the time, we didn't know that. We climbed through another metal railing and found ourselves high up on the slippery outer side of the ship in frigid winter weather. Cindy said, As our group of about 15 got closer to the highest point, we turned and looked out. If I had to guess, I'd say we were about 8 to 10 stories up. It was dark, but there were lights from boats and helicopters, which I assume were part of the rescue operation. We sat there, way up in the air, shivering in the wind and mist. Mom was really upset about the helicopters not seeing us. We waved our arms and yelled, but it didn't do any good. The worst part was being so close to rescue, but feeling so far away. Dean said, After about an hour, one of our fellow passengers decided we needed to make our way back down toward the middle, where it looked like a lifeboat had gotten up close enough for people to jump on. He seemed pretty excited about it. I remember noticing that he had a dark jacket on and dark pants, which kind of looked like a uniform. So I asked, are you a crew member? Oh no, he said. I'm an architect from Vienna. I should have figured he was a passenger, because not once had we encountered a crew member taking charge of anything. But this passenger was stepping up and doing what needed to be done, just like the two German fellows had done at the top of the ladder, and like Val and Cindy had done at the bottom of the ladder. The plan was to scoot down to an area a little ways below us, crawl across a small strip between the openings where the lifeboats had been, and make our way across to the middle of the ship, and then use thin ropes that hung down the side of the ship to guide us lower until we were close enough to jump into a lifeboat. Georgia told me later that she thought there was no way she could do it. We knew that one slip could plunge us into the water, but she quickly realized if she wanted off the ship, she had no choice. Finally, we found ourselves directly above a lifeboat. About this time, we noticed the first crew member we had seen since being ordered off the first lifeboat. What amazed us most of all was that he was taking a smoke break. There he sat, on the side of the ship, at 2.30 in the morning, calmly having a cigarette while passengers tried to evacuate. We grabbed the nearest rope and got ourselves down to the lifeboat. Together, we had survived. Whew. So that absolutely chilling tale was the longest one I had. But I do have some others here, and they're also worth hearing. I also want to talk about 
one that I saw in a video, which was a woman, she was just taking a video. There was tons of people taking videos. This was 2012. Everyone could take videos on their phone. And that's why there is so many to watch on YouTube if you ever want to go and see that. But uh, she had been in a lifeboat and she had made it to the shore and she's looking around at all this chaotic panic and there's there's no clue where they're going to put the survivors. Everyone knows there's people still on the ship. Everyone knows that the crew didn't know what they were doing. Anyway, she's videoing. And one crew member who happens to be close to her said, you're not allowed to video. And she goes, I am allowed to video. And the crew member goes, who told you you're allowed to video? And I'm like, really? That's what you're focusing on? Life or death situation? Really? (laughs) This woman is entitled to video every moment for the rest of her life. Like, fuck you. (laughs) That one always sticks in my head just because it was so unbelievable. All right. So these others I pulled from an ABC News article. And again, it's the American Survivors. So this one's about Alex and Arthur Beach. The cruise aboard the Costa Concordia was Alex Beach's birthday present from her husband, Arthur. The Albuquerque, New Mexico couple were resting comfortably in their cabin after a day of sightseeing in Rome, followed by dinner on board the ship when disaster struck. The couple told Good Morning America that, at first, passengers were led to believe there was nothing wrong. Then, as the ship began to tilt and lights went out, there was a mad rush to the ship's lifeboats the last line of escape from the sinking vessel. It took five tries to get in, Alex Beach said. We kept going to lifeboats, and they were already full, and people were pushing and shoving and screaming. They were jumping on lifeboats, even though they were already full. We got to the fifth one, she said. When we got to where we could get on, I heard someone say there were nine spots left. The couple's long journey took them home to Barcelona, Spain, before they finally made it back safely to the U.S. All right, the next story is from Jim, Joe, and Mary Jo Salzberg. Jim Salzberg and his wife, Joe and their daughter, Mary Jo of Richmond, Illinois, were traveling together aboard the Costa Concordia. All of a sudden, there was a big thud, a scraping sound, and then another thud, Jim Salzberg said. When they and other passengers left their cabins, they were told not to worry. It was an electrical problem. Then the lights went out, and the ship began to list, and chaos began. Crew members told the family, whose cabin was on the second deck, to go up to three. On three, they were told to go to four. On four, they were told to go to five. I said, wait a minute, Jim Salzberg said. There were people running up and down, panicking, people passing out, nobody there to help, said Mary Jo. So we just figured we have to do this on our own. Passengers were told to go to muster stations, but no one knew where they were. The Salzberg added that a safety drill was scheduled for the following day. Two hours after the thud, the call was passed down to abandoned ship, the family said but crew members apparently had little training in how to operate the lifeboats. My mom had difficulty walking, and she just kept saying, I can't do this, I can't do this, and I'm like, we've got to do this, said Mary Jo. After the family's lifeboat hit the water, Jim shot a video from the lifeboat. Jim said that the ship's captain should be responsible for those people that died, and that he should absolutely face criminal charges. Jim Salzberg likened the Costa Concordia to the Titanic. It was the same type of deal. The ship is listing, and people are running for lifeboats. I was just waiting for the band to start playing. All right, now the next story is from Nicole Serval, whose husband is Francis Serval, who I did mention before he did not make it. I owe my life to my husband, Nicole Serval, 61, whose husband Francis gave her his only life jacket they had. He said to me, jump, jump. And I don't know how to swim, so he gave me his life jacket. I was hesitant about jumping, so he went first. Then I jumped. I floated on my back. The cruise had been a gift from the French couple's children in celebration of Nicole's 60th birthday. I called to him. He shouted back, Don't worry, I'll be all right. The water was barely eight degrees. And then I never saw him again, she said. Serval told RTL that she was in the water until she was washed up against some rocks where villagers rescued her and took her to a church to recover in the warmth. There was no one to save my husband. We were alone, she said, of the captain's crew abandonment of their ship's passengers. That story is really heartbreaking. The next one is from Emily Lowe and Benji Smith. 
It's every man for himself, said Emily Lau, passenger from Boston aboard the Costa Concordia. The main thing is no one knew how to help because they were never trained. That is the cruise ship's fault. Lau, 27, was on board the Costa Concordia luxury liner with her husband of 14 days, Benji Smith, 34, to celebrate their honeymoon with a cruise along the Mediterranean. Lau and Smith joined a handful of passengers in making a last-minute escape from the sinking ship by tying a rope and sheets into knots and then using that as a ladder to lower themselves down to the bottom of the ship's hull, where they were eventually rescued by a lifeboat. We had to improvise. There was no instruction, Smith said. No one was telling us what to do. The next one is from Mark and Sarah Plath. Mark and Sarah Plath of Little Rock, Arkansas, awoke to an announcement just before 11 p.m., saying there was a power outage, but not to worry about it. Using their iPhone's level app, the couple soon discovered that the ship was tilting 23 degrees. When they went outside, they found about 500 people on the fourth floor deck. We were trying to get outside, Mark Plath told ABC News. People had children with them. People were pushing. People were yelling. People were pushing back. It was difficult to stay in control because so many people were upset. We were moving really fast, and so Mark said, we've got to jump, Sarah Plath said. The couple jumped and swam to nearby rocks. Again, jumping into dark water. That is so terrifying. I can't. Oh, my heart goes out to them. And this is this was Italian winter. This was not warm. Okay, this next one is actually from a crew member on board who was one of the last to get off the ship. And I want to point out one of the last crew members off the ship was a 23-year-old dancer, while the first was the captain. Does that seem backwards to anyone? Maybe it's because, maybe it's because this particular captain was a poop head, as I have said. Rose Metcalf, a 23-year-old Briton working as a dancer on the ship, turned to her computer when she did not think she would make it out of the ship alive. My name is Rose. It's Friday the 13th, and I'm one of... Oh my goodness. I never made that connection before. Now, this crash happened on Friday the 13th. Okay, between that and the bottle failing to break, I am just saying. I have never been a superstitious person, but this... this is freaky. Sorry, back to it. My name is Rose. It's Friday the 13th, and I'm one of the last survivors still on board the sinking cruise ship off the coast of Italy. Pray for us to be rescued, she wrote in a post to her mom on Facebook. British media reported that Metcalf and her boyfriend, an engineer on the ship, climbed the sinking ship's railings and and lashed themselves to a pole with a water hose to avoid falling. By the end, there were about five of us, and we were the last to get off, she told BBC Television, according to the UK Telegraph. I have one more story from this particular article, and then I also have kind of one more from a different article, although it's several stories combined in one. So first I'll read this one, and it's actually really eerie. It creeps me out. I get chills when I read this one. So Rosalind Rickon was a 30-year-old magician's assistant, and she found herself stuck inside a magician's trick box when the Concordia hit the rocks. A magician's trick box? It's basically a coffin. She was stuck inside a coffin. She was in the middle of the magic show when it ran aground inside a magic box, and then all the lights were out, so she struggled to get out of the box, Rickon's mother, Claire Rickon, told BBC News. Rickon, who suffered cuts and bruises but managed to escape both the coffin and the ship safely, called her mom as the ship was keeling over. Rosalind was a bit hysterical, saying the ship was sinking. But seeing she's a dancer, and they do drama, I just thought it was all a bit surreal, she said. You don't hear about big ships sinking like that nowadays. The CNN article I'm about to share... I have to kind of read the article because it mixed up a whole bunch of different interviews and some quotes from the CEO of the company. So I really, I wanted to share these, but it was hard to separate them. So I'm basically just reading the article. These are the stories of Melissa Goduti of Walford, Connecticut, Lynn Kalin of Boy Allop, Washington. Sorry to anyone who's from there. Nancy LaFaro of 
New Rochelle, New York, and Joan Flesser of Duanisburg, New York. All of a sudden, the boat leaned over, like on a 70-degree angle, and everything just started falling. Dishes were falling, trash cans were falling, everything was falling, Gaduti told CNN affiliate CTN now. Then the lights went out, and everything was blacked, and then the lights came back on. Lynn Kalin of Polyup, Washington, told CNN affiliate KCPQ that it was like having the Titanic without the water gushing through. I called my husband, not knowing if I'd see him again, she said. I thought we were going to die. There were no announcements for a long time, and Gaduti and her mother didn't see any signs directing them toward lifeboats. We were running around, trying to ask what floor the lifeboats were on, and all the crew kept saying is, You don't need them. You're fine. Everything is fine. We just got hit by a big wave. All they kept saying was that it's a generator issue. Just a generator issue, and the boat was floating along and needed to get stabilized. Nancy LaFaro of New Rochelle, New York, said the crew tried to do what they could, but when we asked them, they said they had no information. They didn't have any information to give us. Faro estimates the first announcement came 30 to 40 minutes after the ship ran aground. Gaduti and her mother felt lucky they found a lifeboat. When our lifeboat dropped, it dropped. It wasn't an easy letdown by any means, but at least we got into the water and were safe, which is a lot better, unfortunately, than some people. Costa staff and Lafaro's lifeboat were debating who would drive the boat, and they didn't seem to know what to do, she said. The Costa Concordia struck rocks on January 13th and turned on its side off the Italian island of Giglio. Joan Flesser of Duanisburg, New York, seconds that opinion, calling the crew inexperienced and untrained. In a letter to passengers, Costa Cruz's CEO, Pierre-Luigi Fosci, disputes that assessment. The crew of the Costa Concordia acted bravely and swiftly in an, in an extremely difficult situation and succeeded, despite the terribly demanding conditions, in evacuating more than 4,000 people in the shortest possible time. We are proud of our commitment and dedication to your safety. He goes on to outline crew training, safety procedures, and regulatory oversight. Survivors of the disaster say that the scene on land was equally chaotic. Flesser said the lifeboat ride to the Tuscan island of Giglio was the last she saw of the Costa Cruz's employees until she, her husband, and daughter reached a hotel in Rome on Saturday. The people of the island came out in force to help the stranded travelers, and a local priest opened up the church. Flesser and her family stayed at the home of a local family overnight. The people of the island were wonderful, Flesser said. Nancy LaFaro and her husband wandered around on shore, finding a church, a local cafe, and a small hotel all packed. There was no organization, there was nobody, and the staff were in shock as much as we were. There were no announcements. We saw Costa people walking around with a bullhorn, not using it, LaFaro said. Flesser and her family were herded onto a ferry to the mainland the morning after the wreck, but we had no idea where we were going. Triage doctors, members of the Coast Guard, the Red Cross, and other volunteer organizations met the cruise passengers and took them to a local school, where more local services were provided. Her daughter received a pair of sneakers because she was still wearing the high heels from the night before, Flesser said. Family then boarded a bus to Rome, where they were dropped off at a hotel. The Marriott had no idea we were coming. All these refugee boat people land at their front door, and they say, who are you? But we'll take care of you, Flesser said. There were two Costa Cruz representatives at the hotel, but every time we asked them if they could do something for us, they said they had absolutely no authority. The cruise line did pay for food, the hotel, and the airfare home, Flesser said, although they had booked them on a flight to Albany, Georgia, instead of Albany, New York, a mistake the family discovered in the Atlanta airport. Oh my god, we were ready to lose it at that point. More than 1,100 Costa employees have been working to assist passengers and crew since Friday night, Foshi said in his letter to passengers. The CEO of Costa's pairing company, Carnival Corp, pledged support to the passengers. I give my personal assurance that we will take care of each and every one of our guests, crew, and families affected by the tragic event, Mickey Arison said in a statement. Before Flesser and her family could make the journey home, they needed new passports to replace those lost on the sinking ship. The U.S. Embassy's response was a big disappointment, Flesser said. Other than getting our temporary passports, they gave us no assistance whatsoever. No food, no clothes, no money, no transportation. They told us to borrow some money, get a cab, come on down. A hotel shuttle took Flesser and other Americans to the embassy, she said. 
State Department spokeswoman Victoria Newland said the agency arranged with the cruise line to have American passengers transported to a Rome hotel and to the embassy for documents. More than 100 emergency passports have been issued to stranded travelers. We also provided all kinds of advice, telephone contacts to families, and helped families create travel funds, provided them with passport photos, warm clothes, and there were even a couple families that needed diapers, she said to the State Department briefing Wednesday. Flesser and her family arrived home shortly after midnight on Tuesday. They received a voicemail from Costa, saying the family would be reimbursed for the cruise and the articles lost on the ship she said, but the message didn't offer details about how those amounts would be determined. Okay, so those are all the stories I have. These stories really showcase the negligence in place here, not just by the crew on board that day, but by the larger organization who did not prepare the crew or even properly plan for an evacuation. You can also clearly hear how challenging any of the activities involved in escaping from the ship would have been for anyone elderly or anyone with a disability. It's honestly amazing to me there weren't more deaths, and I think that can only be attributed to the fact that most of the ship never ended up going underwater. So let's talk about the salvage, because that operation was an incredible feat in itself. Initially, a salvage company named Smith International was hired to remove the fuel from the wreck. That was the most pressing issue, as the ship was carrying a lot of fuel, and it would have been the biggest environmental and economic impact if it began to leak into the ocean. The fuel was fully removed by March 2012. Next came moving the wreck upright, floating it, and towing it to port. An operation like this for a partially sunken vessel this large had never been attempted before, and the operation ended up costing, by the time it was done, 2 billion US dollars, and it took 500 workers from 26 different countries. Unfortunately, I did also read that one member of the salvage team also died, but I couldn't find how. I imagine he was a diver or an underwater welder. Stuff does go wrong with them, and I am very sorry to him and his family. The operation was a race against time. The wreck was rusting, and it could break apart. There's actually some really amazing documentaries on this project. How about pollution from the wreckage? Environmental protection was actually a high priority of the salvage team, which is surprising in any commercial operation. To measure any environmental effects, the team deployed mussels, and I mean like ocean mussels, the creature, at different locations around the wreck, and regularly tested them for elevated levels of anything that could be harmful. They used these results in all stages of planning and the execution. Even so, it is difficult to avoid harm in this type of situation, and microplastics have been found in elevated levels in local fish in the years since the accident. The ship was finally refloated on July 23, 2014. It moved at a eye-watering 4 kilometers per hour with an escort of 14 other ships, and it arrived at the Genoa port on July 27th. The initial dismantling was completed May 11, 2015. The wreck was then towed 16 kilometers to a different dock for upper deck removal. The last spontoons, which were the things keeping the ship afloat, were removed in August of 2016, and the remaining hull was taken to a dry dock the following September for the final dismantling. Scrapping of the ship was officially completed July 7, 2017. And that is the end of the tale. So, what were the failures involved here? There was the failure of the crew to voice any safety concerns about changing course, failure of the second officer to properly voice his concerns, plan a safe route, failure of the captain to do everything. He did nothing right. He was a failure in every way. He failed to refuse an unsafe request. He failed to chart a safe route. He failed to evacuate everyone after hitting the rocks. He failed to tell the truth to the authorities and passengers. He failed to initiate a safe evacuation. He failed to stay on board until evacuation was complete, and many, many, many more. There was also a failure by the company, by the crew, to complete safety drills. There was a failure in company policies to ensure that everyone had safety equipment. Failure to ensure that the lifeboats could launch in the event of a listing ship. 
as we remember, if you've heard my episode about the Ocean Ranger, that is known to be an issue. Lifeboats are not designed to be launched when a ship is listing, and yet it's when a ship is listing that you need lifeboats. There's also a failure, I think, on the ship's designers. And I don't say that because ships should necessarily be made to stand up to rocks. I just mean if one person is able to crash a ship to the point that it can sink in a big ship like that, I mean, we try to avoid that in aviation, which is my background. Could more have been done here? Is there a way to make ships more resistant to running against rocks? All of the electrical went out. Is there a way to properly protect electrical systems so that you can still have all of those? Is, is there a way to make this design more resilient? I haven't seen anything regarding that, but I'd be interested in results examining that. So the maritime world is really complicated and a really niche subject in itself. Cruise ships are inherently prone to accidents. They are hard to maneuver and they're very exposed to the elements. Rogue waves, viruses like COVID-19, and lots of other factors have been known to cause deaths in recent years. I've been on one cruise in my life, and the safety drill we did was incredibly confusing and obviously would not have worked in a real accident. Most passengers were elderly and couldn't even get down to the muster point without working elevators. The thing is, maritime regulation is famously not safety-based. The long history of maritime operation is mostly not passenger-focused. It's been largely based in trading and in warfare. There has been little focus in protecting the vulnerable. Regulation is also decentralized, and cruise ship companies often shop around for flags to fly under, as different countries require varying degrees of taxes and safety regulations. Cruise ships are also expensive to operate, and the companies don't want to spend money on lifeboat systems, life jackets, robust safety systems, when these things don't yield direct returns. I personally will point out what I always point out. One serious accident is more expensive than any amount of safety preparation. Deaths make accidents even more expensive. Preserving human life at all costs will always, therefore, be cost-saving. There have actually been a lot of academic studies written about this accident, focusing on safety culture, organizational psychology, and maritime psychology. One interesting study that I read drew parallels between this accident and the Titanic, making the point that one consequence of not learning lessons from the Titanic on a global maritime level was the Costa Concordia accident, and there will be similar future accidents if we don't learn the lessons from the Costa Concordia. This study also points out that there have been many other smaller scale maritime accidents with similar issues at heart. Both the captains of the Titanic and the Costa Concordia were very experienced and had immaculate service records prior to the accidents. Both captains were aware of potential dangers, but felt the risk could be easily controlled. If you don't know, the captain of the Titanic was aware there were large amounts of drifting ice in the area and that other vessels were avoiding the area because of that, but he figured he would be able to see and avoid any ice. I will do a multiple part episode on the Titanic, but it's a lot. It's a lot to cover. I'm just not quite there yet. No officers on either ship made any objections to their captain's risky decisions. Both the parent companies of both cruise ships approved of prioritizing performance and customer satisfaction over safety. Neither ship was built for the emergency situation as it was deemed unlikely that any emergency would occur. These similarities, among others, expose underlying issues that have not been fixed in a 100 years. Another really interesting study discusses the captain model for controlling ships and speculates whether another leadership model might be more appropriate. The author of the study says that this military-like command structure gives one human too much control. He argues that the adaptation of rules will occur as regulations can't cover every situation. And in those cases, there must be someone or some system that prioritizes safety, which the captain alone doesn't always do. Here's an interesting quote from the study. 
Organizations, even those designed to be highly reliable, can end up being vulnerable to human decisions that are not predicted by the system and that produce vicious circles that lead to disaster. That happens when the formal adaptation of standards may allow forms of adaptation under the radar, yet under the shelter of formal compliance. This accident is fascinating and could be examined from almost infinite angles. What's most important, though, is could this happen again? I would love to talk to an expert in maritime operations about this. But from my lens, I would say yes. Look at cruise ship operations at the beginning of COVID-19. Those stories were horrific and point to similar safety cultures on board, confused crews and lack of emergency planning. Again, there is no centralized recommendation from an investigation board or universal regulator. Safety regulation is very limited for maritime operations and overall inadequate. The cruise ship worldwide system would really have to be redrawn from the ground up. Frankly, it should have been after the Titanic. That was the infancy of the cruise ship era, and it would have been a perfect moment to talk about how to plan for a future cruise ship and how to establish a base for cruise ship operations. But of course, that didn't happen. I will talk about the Titanic again in the future and what did happen and what was the aftermath, but that is going to take several episodes. So let's talk about the aftermath of this accident. Of course, there's been many documentaries and docuseries and books and articles that have been released talking about this accident. Too many to name, so I will mention a few I have personally seen that are worth watching. The first is called Terror at Sea, The Sinking of the Costa Concordia. It came out on April 11th, 2012, and you can find it usually on YouTube. The other is an episode of a show called Nova. The episode is called Sunken Ship Rescue and talks about the rising of the ship after the accident. So I'll go in a bit into the lawsuits. It was actually really hard to find how these were settled and where they end up. I would say overall, everything's inadequate, both the criminal convictions and the financial monetary lawsuits that happened. Nothing was centralized. Everything was a mess and confusing. And I don't think anyone ended up with the justice they wanted. So five employees of the Carnival cruise ship line were convicted of manslaughter in Italy. Their sentences ranged from 18 months to 34 months. The captain was tried separately. He was sentenced to 16 years in prison. He tried to appeal, but the sentence was upheld. Costa Crociere was fined 1.1 million American dollars, but faced no criminal charges. Costa Crociere offered the passengers aboard 14,000 US dollars each in compensation. Three class action lawsuits were brought against the company, one by a consumer company named Codacons and two by separate US law firms, all demanding at least 160,000 for each passenger on the ship, not including those passengers injured or dead, whose families are entitled to much more. One of these lawsuits was dismissed in Miami with the reasoning that the lawsuits have to be settled in Italy. Several Italian companies also tried to file lawsuits against Carnival, but there seems to be a lot of confusion about whether to file those in Italy or the States. A judge in Florida actually dismissed one of these lawsuits, and I'm unsure what came of that. Italian officials also sued Costa Cruises for $275 million for ruining local tourism. I'm sure if they did win any of that money, it went to the government and not local business owners, but that's my cynicism talking. So that is it, and... I know it's an unsatisfying end, but that is the way these big accidents often turn up. It's global, lots of big companies involved, big money, and unfortunately, no real uniform recommendations. So that's it for today's episode. If you enjoyed, please hit subscribe and or leave a review. And to discuss today's episode or be notified about future episodes, please follow on Instagram at Disaster Diving Podcast or on Twitter at Disaster Diving Podcast. You can also send me an email at Disaster Diving Podcast at gmail.com. Thank you and see you next week.